I'd like to make the case why private equity shouldn't be considered an alternative asset class anymore, and it's now a core part of every portfolio. Now, the first chart I'd like to present is just a graph showing the number of companies that are private versus the number of companies that are public in the US. And you can see, while the number of companies have been increasing, more and more companies are deciding to stay private over time. If you forget everything you, you knew about finance and go back to the principle of you want to own parts of the best companies globally, and you saw this chart, and then you looked at how portfolios are constructed today, where 60-70% of portfolios are enlisted equities, it would be at sharp contrast to what you see here. Okay? A lot of those private companies are actually SMEs. And so if you cut this chart and peel it back a layer to companies over, say, $100 million in revenue, you'll still see most of those companies are private. But where private equity has really made a big difference, and you may have noticed it as you go to your local GP, optometrist, dentist, there's been a lot of private equity roll-ups of these assets, such that they're no longer mum-and-pop shops, um, but they're now scale businesses. Now, I think private equity is unique in that in a world where AI and other technology is really driving information to flow much more quickly than it was before, and the level of perfect information available, or near-perfect information available, in the public markets has increasingly become a commodity. Private equity is, in our view, a sustained source of alpha and information asymmetry. So there's many differences between private markets and, and listed markets, but I'll just highlight kind of three dimensions I'd like to mention here. One is information av availability. ChatGPT, as a program, had to be trained over reams of data for many years. As an ex-software engineer myself, I know how difficult it is to design and train up these kind of neural networks and models. The problem is, when you're dealing with private markets, the information is generally held in family groups or by individuals, and it's not easily accessible to, to bots and, and other AI. And so there's limited information, and relationships are key. While in the listed market, um, there's a level playing field of information. And so being able to process that information quickly, such as with AI, can be a big differentiator. Um, the second aspect is on the time horizon. And so while in private markets, you can negotiate proprietary deals and execute them over many months, um, doing deep, detailed due diligence on an investment. Um, in listed markets, it's much more short-term term in terms of the need for regular disclosure, um, and information is often priced in very quickly, in a matter of seconds or days. Um, the third point, which is what we consider a very key point when you're looking at any investment, but in particularly in private equity, is alignment of interest. How aligned are the individuals who are running this company to your interests in terms of making returns? And so in the private markets, um, these are often family-owned groups, so they have significant amounts of their own personal wealth and investable assets in these companies. In, we, when we're working with private equity managers, we're able to offer incentive packages to them such that they're highly aligned and will generate significant wealth for themselves when they hit certain milestone targets and may manage to meet budget. Um, with listed equities, there's a much more diverse group of shareholders, and hence, the ability to do that is much more limited. Now, what's driven some of the increases in private equity adoption in recent years, and one of them has been the growth of the secondary market. So private equity historically has been a fairly illiquid asset class. And what few people know is that 
the private equity industry, in terms of number of buyout deals, has already increased to over a trillion dollars of deal volume a year. Um, but what's more interesting is the secondary market. So these are um, private equity investments that are then sold to other buyers has reached over $100 billion in the, each of the last two years. So it doesn't show 2022, but again, it was over $100 billion um, last year. Um, this has allowed more liquidity into the market, and hence, there's been a greater adoption, particularly from overseas players such as endowments, into the market. Now, listed markets um, do provide access to certain parts of the economy, but they don't provide a whole picture of the entire economy. And so here, I'd just like to highlight through two charts, in the US and Australia, what you would get in, in terms of exposure if you were to look at the entire economy. And then the, bar, the column graph on the right shows what you actually get through the listed stock market. And so what this hides is that you will miss out, potentially, on significant parts of the market. In Australia, while you're over-indexed to mining and financial services, you miss out on a lot of consumer businesses um, as well as business services. In the US, there are a lot of specialty manufacturing businesses in that other bucket, that 59%, that you miss out when you're investing in the listed market. In addition, new technologies, emerging technologies. In our private equity book, we were invested in ChatGPT for years. Right? If you wanted access to that in the listed market, other than getting it indirectly through NVIDIA or others, um, it's very difficult to gain access to those kind of upcoming opportunities and new sectors. By the time it's reached, I guess, mainstream um, listed markets, in many cases, in our view, a lot of that value creation and opportunity has already passed. Now, how's private equity able to generate returns in a sustained manner, um, in our view? So the first one is really by growing revenue, expanding margins, and transforming businesses. Um, this can be through a simple implementation of a strategy change, different value creation plan. Um, the second point, I think, the accretive bolt-ons and M&As, is one of those factors that we think is a, a very sustainable source of alpha. So it's akin to what we've seen with the dental and the optometrist roll-ups. It's buying these mum-and-pop businesses, um, often at very low valuations and value, value multiples, um, consolidating them into a larger group, adding the proper corporate processes, proper corporate infrastructure behind these businesses, doing some corporate branding, but then scaling them up, um, providing, in many cases, a more reliable service proposition. And so you know when you go to a certain GP clinic or a certain dentist or optometrist chain, they'll have certain levels of service criteria. I guess in childcare is another big roll-up play that's happened in Australia. Um, most of them are owned by private equity today. Um, but once you're able to do that, um, I guess in terms of bucket two, strategic repositioning that company for multiple expansion. Most people, when you think of public markets, um, if you think of multiple expansion, it's really, I guess, trying to time the market, which is very, very difficult to do. Trying to buy something low and sell it at a higher multiple. In private equity, if you ignore the, the market environment or you keep it constant, you are able to generate that kind of multiple arbitrage through taking small, unsophisticated mum-and-pop businesses and transforming them into a larger, corporatized group. Um, with that, we often see multiples um, almost double for those type of businesses. And so you can generate that type of multiple arbitrage through the cycle, regardless of what the public markets are doing. And in many cases, like today, where the public markets are more challenging, 
you can use that multiple arbitrage to make sure you return kind of more of your cost and protect your downside. Ensuring that management are aligned and incentivized and being able to get the right management um, is a critical part of the private equity toolkit. And it's what, in many cases, differentiates um, what we do in the private equity land to what the, the public markets are, are able to do. The ability we saw through COVID to cut costs, to create the right cash runways, um, to right-size the, the labor forces of businesses and be able to um, ensure that they are able to sustain difficult periods is much easier to do in a private market setting where you're not managing to quarterly earnings cycle. The third bucket there which I mentioned is optimizing financial leverage. Historically, that's been kind of what private equity has been known for and synonymous for. It is still true in some parts of the market, particularly in the larger buyout markets, where because these are already more professionally run businesses with better management teams and better processes, to generate strong returns, quite often they are more highly leveraged businesses. But in today's world, where private equity is a very large part of many portfolios, that's no longer the case that you can just use leverage as the main driver of returns in your toolkit. Um, but private equity obviously is not without its risks. Um, illiquidity is probably the main one that I mentioned. Today there are more products available in the market that offer things like monthly liquidity. Um, there is a more active secondary market. And there are products with lower minimum investment amounts, as low as kind of 10 to 20,000 for retail-oriented private equity products, compared to in the past where you really needed to have a 10, 20-year investment horizon and at least kind of 5 to $10 million investment amount to play in the private equity space. Now, private equity has had a history of outperforming traditional asset classes over long-term time horizons. As you see here on the 10-year um, return profile, um, private equity has generated over 17% annualized returns. Um, the short-term numbers are more volatile because there is a valuation lag um, for private equity that can be anywhere from three to six months. But even that is improving over time as private equity firms realize the importance of having more up-to-date valuations. The private equity market, being a very opaque market, leads to a great dispersion of returns from the top performers to the bottom quartile performers. I mean, it obviously leads to the question, how do you find sustained sources of alpha? Do you just back the winner from last year, and will they continue to be the winner? Um, what we've seen through our experience is that individuals with a track record for success are more important than backing the organizations they're part of. And so we've backed a lot of first-time funds and a lot of spin-outs, um, where we feel they have a better alignment of interest in a new structure than the prior structure. Um, so quite often, as a firm has success, it becomes much more institutionalized, the AUM of that firm grows, and the private equity firm can then generate very healthy um, profits just through the management fees and not through carried interest or through generating returns for investors. And in those cases, we like to find the individuals who are hungrier, more driven, and, and ask them to put their own money behind their ideas uh, and come out and spin out and start new firms. Now, I thought this chart is very interesting because it contrasts the allocation that we see in Australia, you see at the bottom of this chart, um, through the main superannuation funds, um, typically between 25 and 3%. Um, into private equity. Um, with some of the more growth-oriented funds in Australia, this number can increase to 6 to 8%, but it's still a single-digit um, allocation. Whereas if you look at what the sophisticated investors globally are doing, um, Yale is one of the thought leaders with the Yale endowment model, um, Harvard, for example, 
not only have they started with already very high private equity and venture capital allocations in the 20% plus, um, but over the last five years, they've been rapidly increasing these allocations because they want to be able to access that information asymmetry. They want to be access that sustained source of alpha. And so you see today, Yale already has 41% of their entire portfolio. So this is not their alternatives book. This is their entire endowment um, book, which is 41% in private equity. Um, even in Australia, the Future Fund recently came out with some press um, increasing the private equity allocation now to 17%. Um, and I like to put CalPERS in there because I consider them one of the laggards in the US market. But this is a US um, California state-based pension fund. Even they have allocated 13% to private equity. Um, the final chart I'd like to run through is just the MLC's experience of how private equity can really help diversify a portfolio and protect returns. And so you see on this chart, um, basically on the left of the chart shows a more defensive-oriented portfolio, um, which is kind of 30% in growth assets, 70% in defensive assets like bonds, um, where there's a 2% private equity allocation. Um, and on the far right of the chart, a very high growth-oriented portfolio, where there's a 7% allocation to private equity. Um, but what's interesting through that orange chart is that all the funds where there has been a private equity allocation, there's been a very meaningful increase in returns while also reducing the risk profile of that portfolio. And because of that portfolio construction and portfolio diversification characteristics, we feel that it is essential to put private equity as part of any portfolio today. It no longer should be considered an alternative asset class that's part of a small bucket where you put 1% or 2%. As you've seen from some of our international peers, um, I think private equity is now a must-have in any investment portfolio. Now, in terms of private equity, that's, I guess, an area uh, I'd like to focus and hone in on a bit, just because I think it was very much... Um, yesterday's winner to a larger extent doesn't mean it's not tomorrow's winner, but a couple of things. So if we look part at the last 20 years, my understanding is private equity outperformed public or listed equity um, by about 7%. So what I'd be interested in hearing about is how much of that, if we decompose the return or the excess return, would be a genuine innovation premium versus compensation for illiquidity risk, leverage, and particularly a bias to um, both tech and healthcare? Yeah, I mean, sector-wise, I think private equity does over-index to tech and healthcare. We see it within yeah. our portfolio as well. Um, they've been long-term strong winners in the economy. Um, in terms of leverage, um, the statistics we've tracked through our own portfolio and other portfolios doesn't show an excess of leverage compared to listed market comparables. I think that's one of those myths of private equity that it's necessarily very geared. If you think a lot of the returns in private equity when you include venture capital, venture capital essentially has no leverage, right? Yeah. Um, and then early stage growth to small buyouts, typically because for small buyouts, you're introducing so much operational change to those businesses. So you're rolling out new ERP systems, rolling out new, new processes, hiring new staff, doing bolt-on M&As. Typically, they start with incredibly low levels of gearing from day one. Um, and so I wouldn't say leverage is a particularly high driver. There is definitely an illiquidity premium, though, right? Having your money locked up and not being able to access it in two or three days, like the listed market, does deserve a premium. Um, whether you see different studies show that it's somewhere in the order of 2 to 4%, but it doesn't account for all of that premium. We still think that that outperformance of private equity still demonstrates 
kind of information asymmetry and skill of certain private equity managers. Okay. Just, just something following on from that, I think it's safe to say PE is a very relationship-based, even nepotistic sector to some extent. Um, some have often referred to it as a cottage-like industry. Um, you see oftentimes limited partners, general partners, exchanging commitments across both secondaries and primaries. Um, is, is that a source of genuine alpha or is it a corporate governance issue that needs to be honed in on to a greater extent? Yeah, I think the corporate governance within the private markets sector more generally has mm. increased meaningfully over the last kind of five to ten years to the extent that in many ways the reporting we get on our private opportunities is higher than you would see in public markets, right? You get full access to management in many cases, board, full board reports, kind of detailed packs, additional meetings with management. Um, yeah. Corporate governance has definitely stepped up a significant notch. Um, having a background investing in emerging markets, I have to say that's probably the biggest gap in corporate governance. Um, and even there, it has improved materially. Um, as people have realized that, hey, we can't just kind of back the next person, assuming that our money is safe, assuming that they're going to do the right things. You have to put the right controls and the right frameworks around that. And we've seen a washout of a lot of the low-quality players, mm. um, particularly in China, where there was a lot of RMB local money raised um, without much governance at all, quite often like wealthy individuals or government-related entities. Um, a lot of that money has now gone out of the market. And what's left has been a lot more highly institutional and professional type relationships and managers. Could you just talk quickly about how sensitive it is to vintage years? Yeah, typically so you need to we time that if you're an investor coming in. Yeah, yeah. we try within our program to try, uh, diversify mm. across vintage years, so not try to yeah. time particular cycles. It's very hard to get that timing right. But if you're with the benefit of hindsight, you can typically see that where there are recessions, the kind of year immediately prior and the two years following a recession are normally the best vintage years for private equity. And so if you actually do believe there is going to be a US recession or a global recession end of this year, next year, actually splitting your commitments over kind of a two-year period and investing in private equity has historically shown the best returns, right? But that's obviously assuming you, you get the recession timing right. <laughs> Just something I've been thinking about throughout the discussion today, particularly with what Jonathan Payne was saying. If you look at Saudi Arabia, um, they've had to go through a massive depolarization process in the early 70s. They were very much contributed to the 73 to 75 recession. Um, they had to depolarize in the context of being a, you know, ideology around Wahhabi Islam. In terms of this geopolitical backdrop that we're seeing, is there any lessons from the two superpowers, both the US and the China, to depolarize somehow? Um, and is that perhaps a solution to one thing that they may need coordination on, which is to tackle climate change? Not a geopolitical expert, so I wouldn't say they would necessarily work together on climate change, but what yeah. we've seen in our own portfolio is, at least in healthcare and a lot of pharmaceuticals, there's still a lot of collaboration between the US and China. Yeah. And so I wouldn't say all doors are equally closed. I think where it's uh, sensitive from a military or a national security perspective, particularly in semiconductors and related technology, there is a more hard line. But in other parts of the economy, we've still seen relatively good flow of trade and information between the two economies. And so there are maybe some silver linings in other sectors that aren't immediately obvious when you just read the headline of kind of China versus US. Uh, has uh, the case for PE changed with the jump in inflation and interest rates? Is there any dependence on leverage? 
Yeah, I would say it depends on which segment of the market you play in. Um, the the mid, middle market and the lower mid market, um, where the leverage is the lowest, I would say it would be the least impacted by rising interest rates. Um, the larger end of the, the private equity market, so where the, the, I guess the household names of the KKRs and the Blackstones um, of the world play, they are more dependent on leverage. But even those larger private equity firms have realized that they need to improve their operational toolkit, right? So they're not sitting back going, hey, we can't invest anymore because interest rates are high, right? What they're doing is changing the capital structure, using more equity on their deals, going for bigger transformational opportunities, more kind of global M&A, um, more new product development, and trying to generate those returns um, through different mechanisms. Um, but what I would notice in the market has been a proliferation of what we call core private equity products, which effectively are just lower return private equity products, targeting kind of low to mid-teens. Um, that is in some ways a response to the changing market environment. Um, but I think it helps bridge that gap between what was traditionally kind of private debt slash mes um, and then traditional private equity. It kind of fills that void in the mid to high teens. Um, and so it com complements quite well on some of these other larger private equity transactions to help fill in that capital structure so that these deals can still get done. And one of the things we're seeing in the market today is that it's not so much the cost of the debt that's the issue, it's the ability to actually obtain the debt, right? We've, we're in a couple of take-private transactions where we're the only bidder um, in that consortium because none of the other consortium members can get the debt financing package, right? There's just not enough debt appetite out there, um, and there's just not enough kind of available capital to fund all the deals that want to be done in the market. And so I think that's a, a differentiator um, when you think of the long term, is being able to, I guess, access capital. And I think that's one thing that we've learned over the years and why we pride ourselves on consistent capital deployment, right? Where you get really burnt is when you run out of money in private equity, right? If you're trying to, I guess, time markets and go, we'll invest more in recessionary years, it turns out these two years weren't the recessionary years and it's delayed by another year. When the market really drops, if you're completely out of capital, that's where you really get hurt. And so okay. being able to, to deploy over a longer period of time is very critical.